Just ahead on Black Issues Forum, disturbing scenes of border patrols mistreating Haitian migrants bring outrage and a resignation. State judges block an attempt to pass a voter ID law, and the story of a missing woman in Wyoming prompts questions about equal efforts to find the missing in communities of color. Stay with us. Welcome to Black Issues Forum. I'm Deborah Holt Noel. Scenes at the U.S. shoreline of the Rio Grande portray mistreatment by Border Patrol agents on horseback, using the leather straps of their reins to drive back innocent Haitians attempting to cross into Texas. This after Haiti's recent triple devastation from natural disasters, in addition to the assassination of their president, Jovenel Moise. We are fortunate today to have with us a North Carolinian of Haitian descent who's been on the front lines of assisting Haitians here and abroad since the 2010 earthquake in Haiti. I'd like to welcome Sabine Guerriere, founder of Haitian Heritage and the nonprofit Friends of Haiti. Sabine, thank you so much for being here. And I know that you have uh, family both here in North Carolina and also in Haiti. And um, how is everyone doing? Everyone is struggling with everything that's been happening. Uh, like you said in your intro, since 2010 and the recent earthquake, and then the well, the assassination of the president, then the earthquake, then the storm, and now with what's happening in Texas. So um, everyone is struggling with the crisis. It's crisis after crisis. Certainly. And so when you see these images that the nation, that the world has seen over the last week or so, what are your thoughts about these images and about the coverage that it's getting here in America? My heart breaks, of course, because uh, when I see those images, those um, guards on horseback, um, it's like they're herding cattle, running after animals, not human beings, and running after people who are looking, seeking for better life, better opportunities for their families. And, um, but also, it's a great opportunity for me to see that at least people are seeing what the U.S. policies is doing or has been doing to Haiti. Um, so... It's an eye-opener because many people were not aware because people don't fully understand the whole migration, immigration issue. So I'm glad that it is being seen, even though it is heart-wrenching. It's really heartbreaking to see this, but people can see the ugly truth of what's been happening, what our neighbors has been doing to our country because this is the result. We are where we are today because of the policies, U.S. policies on Haiti and the corruption that really U.S. has embraced, had recommended, has pushed on Haiti because they have put in power people who are corrupt, people who are rapists, gang leaders, to make sure that they protect U.S. interests. That, that's, that a huge, 
that, that, that's a very huge statement, but we also know that you have been involved in um, not just assisting aid efforts, but just involved and knowledgeable about the politics of what, what's going on. And there was a greater expectation for improved treatment to um, all those seeking asylum and refuge here in America under the Biden administration. What are your thoughts about their practices so far? So far, it definitely, it's, you can see it's not for black people. If your skin is a different color, I'm sorry to say it, but it is clear that we Haitians, we are blacks. Our lives, it doesn't appear that our lives matter. Because if you look at uh, the Afghans, and my heart goes out for them also, but 90,000 were brought over, whereas less than 15,000 Haitians made the effort, harness traffic two months, two to three months, to come to the U.S. And they are being sent home under Title 42, which the previous administration had put in place, which we criticized, which during the campaign, it was like, we are going to work with you. If you made it here, I'm going to seek asylum, making the effort to be here, then you're going to send me back without due process, without giving me an opportunity to plead my case. So it's double uh, standard, definitely. So um, what was said during our campaign is definitely that's what's being applied now. And before we go, we have just about a minute left. Tell us a little bit about your relief efforts and how people can help. Yes, we have a family uh, who actually, thank goodness, managed to make it from uh, Texas and they are here in Charlotte, a family of five. So of course they are in need of everything clothing, food. Right now, they are uh, in, in a hotel. One community member is paying for that. So we're looking for assistance, fin financial assistance uh, to get uh, a place for the family of five. They have three young children to see how we can give them all the support that they need. Also, we would like to partner with other organizations in the ground in Texas uh, to send food, um, clothing, water, food. They have not, nothing, and hygiene kits as well. Well, needless to say, and based on what you shared, the need is, is tremendous. And so any way that people can help, they should, not only with their uh, resources, but also uh, with their political decisions. So Sabine Guerrier, thank you so much for being here and sharing, um, sharing your experience. No, I thank you and for having for having me and I will ask the community to continue to speak up and speak out and help us help us change the crisis once and for all. Thank you. We're going to stick with Haiti for a moment as we meet today's panel. I'd like to welcome political analyst Steve Rao, attorney Jessica Holmes, and Lamisha Whittington of Advance Carolina. Now, just Thursday, the U.S. Special Envoy for Haiti submitted his resignation saying, I will not be associated with the United States' inhumane, counterproductive decision to deport thousands of Haitian refugees and illegal immigrants to Haiti. Given recent events, it's understandable many Haitians would seek asylum in America. The Biden administration, however, is steadfastly turning them away without a hearing and flying them back to Haiti on planes under the unconstitutional Trump-era public health order Title 42, as was mentioned a little bit earlier. Americans, particularly black Americans, expected better from the Biden administration. I want to open up with you, uh, 
Steve, what do you make of what we're seeing? Well, well, first of all, uh, it's a pleasure to be here with all of you this more, this today. And, uh, you know, the first thing I'll say, uh, Deborah, is that uh, the, the, the upholding of Title 42 by President Biden, uh, I think, is an, another example of him upholding many of President, former President Trump's foreign policies. We've seen him uphold uh, the policies on Cuba, uh, you know, different, uh, different uh, areas, um, you know, just in terms of... Uh, the, the trade, you know, keeping the tariffs and all kinds of things, and now this. So I think it does uh, concern many of us, supporters of President Biden, that he continues to uphold policies of the administration. I do believe that the president, when he addressed the General Assembly, uh, appealed to the nations of the world at the U.N. that we appeal to the common humanity of all mankind and that we use our development aid and strength in the United States to lift up all people around the world. But when you see images of immigrants, you know, asylum refugees, refugees seeking asylum, uh, in the presence of agents with on horses and whips, it sends a very alarming message of the value that we're placing on human rights. And the final thing I'll say is the situations in these countries, and I've said this before on the show, it just shows the disruption of democracy. Over 200,000 refugees are seeking asylum in the United States of America because they're fleeing persecution, torture, poverty, extreme climate change, and they need to come to the United States. So we need to figure out how do we reform our asylum system to process these cases to make it easier for people to come here that are suffering. But if their democracies were stronger, we wouldn't be in such a problem. Jessica, what does this mean for the Biden administration to see this disparity, the contradiction? What do you make of it? Um, I, I think there's a reality that although we're hearing the right words come from the administration, the vice president described the images of men on horseback literally whipping um, at these individuals, she described it as horrible. Um, president Biden himself has talked about how we're a melting pot in this country. Um, the Homeland uh, Security Secretary has talked about the fact that this is troubling profoundly. That said, we are absolutely seeing a disconnect between the words of the administration and the actions of the administration. And I would agree with Representative Maxine Waters, who many of us refer to as Auntie Maxine, when she says that as a black woman in this country, it's one thing to see these images on TV or in a movie, but to see it happening in real time is something that I never imagined that I would see on American soil in my lifetime. And yet we're seeing it. Lamisha, what should the Biden administration do or what should be expected of the people when we're holding the Biden administration accountable for, for things that we're seeing right now, like this? At minimum, the Biden administration should fulfill its campaign promises, right? When Biden and, you know, uh, President uh, Biden and, and Vice President Harris was elected in, it was due in large part to black voters. And that campaign promise was he would raise the limit on the refugee cap. He would raise it to 125,000 refugees that could be resettled in the U.S. every fiscal year. His promise was to heighten that from Trump's historically low refugee cap. Under Trump's previous administration, I think only 15,000 refugees were allowed to come here each year. And so that promise of 125,000 hasn't been fulfilled because Biden backtracked. The administration stated not too long ago that it would keep the current level of refugees that the previous Trump administration set. 
and that was 15,000. So why the backpedaling? That's what we're seeing is the impact of that broken promise. And at minimum, we voted, right, as a people, many people voted many different ways, but we know the result and the outcome of that election was voted and a hold and a promise to actually let refugees in. And now we're seeing the impact. So at minimum, the promises that were made. Next, for our people, we are seeing history repeat itself. We know that the Department of Homeland Security officials and White House press secretary this week on Thursday said that the use of horse patrols has been suspended. It should have been dismantled and disbanded along with slave patrols upon emancipation uh, in the 1800s. That's when slave patrols, which is, guess what? The modern version today is horse patrols using the same terminology. It shouldn't be suspended. It should be disbanded because it's inhumane to Steve and Jessica's point. Well, we certainly have to watch as things continue to unfold on immigration. Closer to home, just as we've seen restrictive voter laws enacted in states across our nation, North Carolina has also been in the mix. A recent effort to impose a voter ID law, however, was struck down two to one by a three judges panel that concluded even though they found no racial animus or hatred in the intent of Republican lawmakers, the outcome was nonetheless illegal racial discrimination. The bill's supporters intend to appeal, so this is not over. Now, supporters of SB 873 continue to defend this legislation, arguing that it has been supported and actually co-sponsored by black Democrats. I'm going to come to you, Jessica. So how could it possibly be racist? Well, I'll start by sort of saying the old age um, statement of four together, one step back. Um, the goal is for together not to take one step back, but it seems that in North Carolina and in this country, we are doing sort of a dance um, when it comes to voting rights in this country. Um, just recently, we in North Carolina um, passed a law or judges ruled that felons could vote. Um, some individuals that were on post-release supervision, for example, could vote. Um, later, that decision was appealed and now it's temporarily blocked. Less than two um, weeks, week, as a matter of fact. Less than two absolutely. weeks. Um, and just this week, um, we had a step forward in that two of those three judges on that panel declared a December 2018 law as unconstitutional. And even though they say it was designed to implement a voter ID mandate that was supposed to be on its face neutral, um, the judges deemed that it was motivated at least in part by an unconstitutional intent to target African-American voters. As I mentioned, in this country and in North Carolina, we've been playing this dance as it relates to voting rights. One thing that I can make very clear is that the fact that folks are trying so hard to play around with our voting rights means that every single opportunity we have to go to the ballot we should do just that. If you have municipal elections coming up in your community this fall, make sure you go out and you exercise your right to vote. It means just that much. Steve, I think it's interesting what the judges um, decided in terms of the word intent. Um, what are your thoughts on, you know, intention to be racist or partisan versus motive versus effect? Well, you know, Deborah, I think Jessica, you know, brought up a great point about, you know, taking a step back. But I think that there clearly is an intent to target, in my opinion, minority and disenfranchised voters. 39% of black Americans don't have an ID. The data shows that. And you are making it harder for them to vote at a time when this is a constitutional right for every American. I often debate this with my Republican friends who say, 
well, I need a voter ID to check into a hotel or get on an airplane. But voting isn't a transaction. It's a right. And we have an obligation as American leaders to make that right easier. So I agree with uh, former Commissioner Holmes that we need to make sure that we're making it easier to vote. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, what I'm worried about, when you talk about intent for racism or targeted precision of disenfranchising voters, we're seeing this now. This was, you know, up, uh, you're striking down a 2018 law. But let's look at what's happened recently, what's happened in Texas, where they're, you know, curbing uh, early voting, making it harder to cap absentee ballots. And our Supreme Court of the United States is upholding these laws. So what I'm afraid of, and they're doing it with these super dockets, you know, rather than having oral arguments. So this is very, very alarming and concerning. And I think the only way to challenge it is to, to vote and to get out there and say that we in America are not going to give up our right to vote, that every American has this right. Absolutely. Regardless of their race. Absolutely. And Lamisha, you know, we're talking about a step forward, a step back. So we've had the John Lewis Voting Rights Act out there. Not sure if that's going to make it through. Also, the For the People Act. Not sure if that's going to make it through. But now we've got the Freedom to Vote Act. Can you share with us a little bit about what that is and what its chances of survival are? Sure. So Freedom to Vote Act contains the uh, vast majority of what we consider the most critical provisions that were in the For the People Act. So we're talking about early voting, uh, same-day voter registration, um, a, a stop to gerrymandering. But the difference is the Freedom to Vote Act is what we consider a watered-down version, right? It, it's this compromise that has made uh, Senate Democrats and addressing concerns raised by Senate Republicans has made them feel more comfortable to be able to pass a bill that's a bit more watered down. So how is it watered down? Even though we're talking about uh, a really important piece that is similar to the John Lewis Voting Rights Act that would actually restore the Voting Rights Act of 1965, would actually protect Black and Brown communities from being gerrymandered, how we've seen it. The issue with this bill is, is that it actually gives states the authority and room and discretion to determine, again, what they see fit as fair voting. We're already in a problem with that. North Carolina uh, can't, uh, again, regulate itself from racial and partisan gerrymandering, which is why we were in the Supreme Court the last almost decade for racial and partisan gerrymandering for cutting black and brown folks with precision. So for an act to pass, guess what? That allows this state, our state, North Carolina, to do what it's always done it, it just seems again like smoke and mirrors. So, but isn't it, it better to accept? Isn't it better to accept a little water, you know, for the compromise to move forward? Jessica, what what happens if we accept this watered down version, which which has um, a lot of good prov provisions in it? Where's the water, and why should we accept it? Um, progress is progress. You know, I um, used the metaphor earlier about taking one step forward. I would describe this as more of a baby step forward. And we should take our wins where we should get them. That said, um, this should not stop the momentum. Um, this should not stop us from continuing to advocate to make sure that every person in this state, every person in this country, regardless of the color of their skin, has the opportunity to vote. And that's not currently happening in this country when we see this trickery that's happening, again, as a um, Congressman, um, future Congressman uh, Rao mentioned uh, earlier, the fact that not just in North Carolina, it's, it's happened all over the country. We're seeing these restrictive bills, these voter ID bills who have racial intent. They can call it whatever they want to call it. But the reality is the motivation at the end of the day is to keep black and brown people away from the ballot. And that is where our strength lies. 
turning to a story that's been in the headlines and met a tragic ending. The body of young Gabby Petito from Wyoming, reported missing on September 11th, was found, identified, and ruled a homicide. Investigators are on the hunt for her fiance, Brian Laundrie, who is a person of interest. We're talking about this here on Black Issues Forum because while everyone, I believe, shares in the sorrow and horror for the loss of this young woman, many are reminded of others gone missing under similar circumstances, namely persons of color, and wonder why they have not received a similar level of national attention and interest. A Washington Post article uh, by Brittany Shamus and Kim Belware calls out the racial disparity, and there's even a name for this phenomenon, coined by the late journalist Gwen Eiffel, quote, Missing white woman syndrome. So I'm going to open up with you, Steve. In 2020, over half a million people were reported missing, nearly 40% of them people of color. What do you, how do we account for this disparity in coverage? Well, I mean, I think the press has an obligation to, first of all, we pray for uh, the families of any of these victims, uh, most recently Gabby Petito. Um, Jelani Day. I mean, but I, but I think that the, the press has an opportunity, has an obligation to make sure that they're covering all of these stories. And and so you know, I do think that there is a tendency to see you know more coverage on when white women, for example, are missing. Um, and I just think that it is something that happens. And I think the only way to address it is to call it out like we are, and to figure out you know how we can make it better. Uh, you know, I mean, it's just. Um, it's so sad that many people are missing. Absolutely. And, and we the don't authors, hear, yeah. The authors of the Washington Post article said an interesting thing of note was that more people were wanting to talk about the disparity in coverage, more so than the details of the case, and that this was perhaps a step in the right direction. Jessica, you know, is the fact that we, we have maybe a heightened uh, sense of awareness about racial issues and disparities, and that people are talking about this, a move forward. Uh, well, I'm going to start by also just acknowledging um, all of the, the men, women, children, boys, and girls across this country that continue to remain missing. Um, I also um, send my condolences to the families um, of Gabby Petito. That said, that isn't the only name that we should know. Um, the reality is that, you know, I have been disgusted by the left media, the right media, um, considering their coverage of people that are missing, particularly those who are black and brown. When we look at things like even sex trafficking, um, oftentimes when it comes to black and brown women, oh, they must have been fast. They must have been doing something that put themselves in that position. No, that, that's not the case. Um, the media put Gabby Petito forth as if she was America's daughter. That's the image that so many people in America could relate to. Um, but the media shouldn't and doesn't get to decide whose daughter, son, mother, father is it's worth living and, and worth covering in this country, and I implore them to, to do better. Agreed. Lamisha, you know, we did also learn recently uh, the, the identity of um, the body, a body found that wound up being Jalen Day, who's a young African-American college student, I'm sorry, Jel Jelani Day, whose body was found and, and, and discovered. Um, and some are saying that because of the attention around Gabby Petito and the fact that under her hashtag, additional uh, names of missing persons of color were included, that this was helpful. What are your thoughts? Um, so deep condolences to the family of Gabby Petito, also giving honor to Xavion Smith, Daniel Robinson, and Jelani Dang and their families. 
Um, and so thinking about our alternative media sources, because we are able to connect with each other via social media, we don't have to rely on mainstream media to do us justice. We know that for black children, we account for 35% of missing children cases in the FBI's database, but only amount to 7% of media references. In addition to the impact on indigenous women and girls, we see that in Wyoming, unfortunately where uh, uh, Gabby, um, her remains were found, Indigenous women, their homicides make up a 21% in that same state, even though they are only 3% of the population. So that's why we're hearing more of the impact of the, our people deserve more to, than to be martyrs of a cause. We deserve to be valued humans, to be seen and to be heard and not silenced, especially when we can't be found in addition to already facing unsurmountable racial oppression. And so social media has been an alternative source for us to be able to lift our individuals. Twitter is an incredible circulation of where Black Twitter will literally share hashtags of our felt. Like there are so many Black women and Black men that are missing on our college campuses and us having to do it ourselves because we can only protect us and we can't rely on media, which has been instituted and historically, white male-led. And that last point is one that I want to just kind of pick up on as we look at why. Some would say, well, you know, it just so happens to be. It doesn't just so happen to be. We have to look at the power structure uh, that's in place within mainstream media. Who's in place? Who's making the decisions? Who identifies with that young, white, blonde female, and that is not to take anything away from the importance of finding uh, justice for her or any any young person uh, who's found missing, but it is to indeed recognize there's a structure out there and it matters. Lamisha Whittington, Steve Rao, Jessica Holmes, I want to thank each of you for your insights. Uh, some really tough topics this week. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. I want to thank today's guests, and we invite you to engage with us on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag Black Issues Forum. You can also find our full episodes on pbsnc.org slash Black Issues Forum or listen at any time on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For Black Issues Forum, I'm Deborah Holt-Noel. Thanks for watching. through the financial contributions of viewers like you who invite you to join them in supporting PBSNC.